Hello and welcome to Nothing But The Poem. Hello and welcome to this month's Nothing But The Poem, where we look at a couple of poems by a poet and give you some insight into the discussion that we had as a group uh, at our Nothing But The Poem online group reading and discussion. The poet that I chose for this month's Nothing But The Poem is Dion Brand, um, mainly because I always want to get to know her work better and also because I was lucky enough to um, see her at Edinburgh Book Festival this year. One of the things she said at the book festival, which is pretty memorable, is how she likes the material of words, words as tactile, one word against the other, one thought against the other. And hopefully you'll be able to hear some of that um, in the poems that I've selected and in the discussion that came out of those poems. So Dion Brand was born in Trinidad and is a poet, novelist, non-fiction writer, filmmaker, educator and activist. She's written 10 previous books of poetry and is a winner of the Governor General's Award, the Trillium Book Award, the Pat Lowther Memorial Award, and a past winner of the Griffin Poetry Prize. And all of the poems that we're looking at today are available on the Griffin Poetry Prize website. So if you'd like to see them for yourselves, just Google Griffin Poetry Prize website and Dion Brand, and they will come up and you'll be able to read them yourselves. Um, She was Toronto's third Poet Laureate from 2009 to 2012. And in 2017, she was named to the Order of Canada. She's a professor in the School of English and Theatre Studies at the University of Guelph. She lives in Toronto. So that's a little bit of background to the author. But um, what we tend to do in the Nothing But The Poem sessions is try to avoid biography so that we can look at the poems themselves. Hence the title, Nothing But The Poems. But sometimes it's useful to just get a sense of who the poet is and where they're coming from. So we're going to look at two poems today. One is a prose poem and one is a more lyric poem. And I'll read them first, and then I'll give you um, some snippets of how the discussion went. So this is the first poem that we looked at. It's called From Verso 4. It has an epigraph at the top of it that says, To verse, to turn, to bend, to plough, a furrow, a row, to turn around, to ward, to traverse. When I was nine, coming home one day from school, I stood at the top of my street and looked down its gentle incline, toward my house obscured by a small bend, taking in the dipping line of the two-bedroom scheme of houses called Monripo, my rest. But there, I've strayed too far from the immediate intention. When I was nine, coming home from school one day, I stood at the top of my street and knew, and felt, and sensed looking down the gentle incline with the small houses and their hibiscus fences, their rosebush fences, their exora fences, their yellow and pink and blue paint washes, the shoemaker on the left upper street, the dressmaker on the lower left, and way to the bottom, the park, and the deep culvert where a boy on a bike pushed me, and one of my aunts took a stick to his mother's door. Again, when I was nine, coming home one day in my brown overall uniform with the white blouse, I stood on the top of my street knowing coming to know in that instant when the sun was in its four o'clock phase and looking down I could see open windows and doors and front door curtains flying out. I was nine and I stood at the top of the street for no reason except to make the descent of the gentle incline toward my house 
where I lived with everyone and everything in the world. My sisters and my cousins were with me. We had our book bags and our four o'clock hunger with us and our grandmother and everything we loved in the world was waiting in the yellow washed house. There was a hibiscus hedge and a buttercup bush and zinnias waiting and for several moments all this seemed to drift towards the past. Again, when I was nine and stood at the head of my street and looked down the gentle incline toward my house in the four o'clock coming home sunlight, it came over me that I was not going to live here all my life, that I was going away and never returning some day. So one of the things that came up for us when we were discussing the poem, and which does come up quite regularly when we're looking at prose poems in particular, is why? Why is it in prose? Why is it um, not broken up into stanzas or broken up into a kind of more visual form? And what the group kind of came to the conclusion was that actually it feels like there's almost stanzas buried within the prose, that kind of repetition of when I was nine, or again, when I was nine, coming home, when I was nine, that circling back, almost as if not wanting to leave, um, not wanting to leave um, the home, not wanting to leave this block of text, this space of the poem, and this repetition of when I was nine as kind of psychologically significant, a period of time that obviously to the poet um, and to the writer wanting to emphasize that exact age where this kind of knowledge comes over them um, in the four o'clock coming home sunlight that I was not going to live here all my life. I was going away and never returning someday. In a way, prose poems, I suggest, often work by surprise and playing with the reader's expectation, that difference of seeing the text laid out as prose plays with the reader's expectation as to how a poem should look and then how a poem should work. When it's in a prose form, you almost um, read differently. And we all commented on how the ending itself seems to be quite unexpected. We weren't, couldn't see that ending coming. Maybe it was the repetition, that kind of when I was nine, we were circling back and circling back. And that kind of realization at the end of that this, this, this person is not going to live here all my life. I'm not going to be able to repeat these same things. They're going to have to leave at some point. We were, we were caught out. It, we weren't sure where the poem was heading to. And in a way, the prose poem can do that uh, in a different way to um, perhaps a lyric poem. Obviously, this is all up for debate. And these are the kind of discussions that we have in the group. But it was striking how that um, worked on people. It's also quite striking how epigraphs are used by poets. A PhD could probably be written on, and probably has been written on, the place of the epigraph in contemporary poetry. But I wonder whether, and perhaps this is uh, my fault for not uh, guiding the group, but they're often jumped over or um, kind of read uh, at the beginning, um, but not really returned to as a useful piece of the poem. Um, but in this situation, we went back to the epigraph after we'd read the poem and read it in its entirety and then read it again and realized that actually that epigraph is really useful for getting a sense of how the poem is structured and kind of prepared on the page. And so that epigraph that reads to verse, to turn, to bend, to plow, a furrow, a row, to turn around, toward, to traverse. And without explaining the content of the poem, 
it worked really well as a kind of sense of how the poem is set out on the page. It's in rows. It's almost as far in, in furrows. It's almost as if the words are kind of set out as if they've been, they've been plowed and turned over and worked. And that helped us read the poem one more time, thinking of it as a kind of plowed field uh, or a space to traverse across. And that's how the images kind of are turned over for us. And that um, this plowing and this traver traversing across is how the prose poem, in this case, seems to work. So there was a lot in there, and it's very much worth visiting the Griffin Poetry Prize website and reading it for yourself and seeing how that prose poem works on you. The other poem we looked at was called Thirsty. Very different style, but still with Brand's voice coming through. I'm going to read that one now and see if you can, um, as you listen in, see if you can kind of hear the difference in the way it's set on the page, but also the language and where the kind of eye, the lyric eye is situated. Where are they standing? What are they doing? So this poem is called Thirsty. This city is beauty, unbreakable and amorous as eyelids in the streets, pressed with fierce departures, submerged landings, I am innocent as thresholds and smashed night birds, lovesick as empty elevators. Let me declare doorways, corners, pursuit. Let me say, standing here in eyelashes, in invisible breasts, in the shrinking lake, in the tiny shops of untrue recollections, the brittle, gnawed life we live, I am held and held. The touch of everything blushes me, pigeons and wrecked boys, half-dead hours, blind musicians, inconclusive women in bruised dresses, even the habitual grey-suited men with terrible briefcases. How come? How come I anticipate nothing as intimate as history? Would I have had a different life, failing this embrace with broken things, iridescent veins, ecstatic bullets? small cracks in the brain, would I know these particular facts? How a phrase scars a cheek, how water dries love out. This, a thought as casual as any second, eviscerates a breath. And this, we meet in careless intervals, in coffee bars, gas stations, in prosthetic conversations, lotteries, untranslatable mouths, inversions of what we might may be, a tremor of the hand in the realisation of endings, a glancing blow of tears on skin, the keen dismissal in speed. Often in our sessions, it's quite telling, depending on which poem we start with, how the second poem is interpreted, and obviously vice versa. If you were to read this one first and then go to prose poem verse 04, it would affect your interpretation. And that's often when we're reading collections in book form. Obviously, there's been a lot of thought put into how poems sit together and how they talk to one another. And that's also the case here. I wanted to put very different um, examples of Dion Brand's poetry together and see what the group thought of them. And with this one, Thirsty, everyone commented on how harsh the imagery was and how striking particular poetic phrasings were and how they, they stuck out things like prosthetic conversations and innocent as thresholds and smashed night birds, lovesick as empty elevators. 
a real kind of reaching for metaphor and simile that is very different to the the prose poem about um, being nine and coming home. This city is is the opening is this city is beauty, but it felt like there was a violence at the heart of it. But at the same time, as with any um, good poetry, quality poetry, there is enough ambiguity in the in the whole poem. Uh, and when we read it, when we read it twice, as we do with all the poems that we use for nothing but the poem, we realize that there's actually quite a lot of ambiguity. And there's an ambiguity in the at the heart of the poem that allows for a kind of positive or negative interpretations. Is this city a fragile, violent, fierce place? Or is it actually a kind of uh, liberation? Uh, is it somewhere that ecstatic, somewhere um, to escape to? And that was one of the ambiguities that we circled a lot in our discussions. And that's that kind of undecidability that uh, a poet can practice. Again, looking at form, which is what we do, and it, uh, it's important to, to bring these discussions to form as well. This poem is set out in five stanzas, kind of, and we decided to discuss this along the lines again of how it looks on the page and how that presents the ideas. And we interpreted this as kind of five blocks, five city blocks. This is a city. This is set in a city. So if you kind of look at the stanzas as um, city blocks, they are structured and, and similarly structured throughout. But there's a kind of creative chaos at the heart of them. So on the surface, they look ordered and designed and urban um, in, the, in these blocks. But at the heart of them is a particular kind of ecstatic creative chaos uh, and something that you can revisit again and again. And in that, we kind of thought, saw this poem as a as a map. So the poem as a map and the city block as a map for the poem. So there was a kind of interrelationship between the city, the poem, and the poem and the city. The poet writing the city and the city forming the poet. And in all these, in all these kind of prosthetic conversations that we have, they're always open, yeah, as poetry is most of the time, open for interpretation and open for discussion. And what's good about the Nothing But The Poem sessions that we that we do when we, we meet together is that it's a communal building of interpretation. You can set, lay out uh, an idea and it can be discussed and kind of plowed back into the poem and plowed back into how um, the group is interpreting and reading the poems together. So that's a little insight into how we approached two of uh, Dion Brand's poems. And if you would like to be part of that discussion and bring some of your own ideas to um, the poems and poets that we choose to read together, then you can join as a friend of the Scottish Poetry Library, and that will give you access to our online Nothing But The Poem sessions. And they are, as I say, they're online, they're on Zoom, so you can come in from anywhere, given the time frame and given the time difference. You can come in from anywhere on the planet uh, and meet with us and discuss poetry, which I think is a wonderful thing. Thanks very much for listening. And I hope you got something from that and go and read more Dion Brand. Thank you.